0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the SimKit Podcast. Thank you for joining us today on our discussion on the pediatric oropharyngeal foreign body, which is a bit of a mouthful, but I kind of think of it as little airways, kind of big nightmares. I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Eileen Claudius. You may know Eileen's voice as being behind the MRAP's Pediatric Pearls, but she's a nationally and internationally recognized speaker and speaks in the areas of pediatric emergencies making her the perfect person to talk to today about our terrifying topic. Eileen, uh, welcome to the SimKit Podcast.
1: Thank you so much. Terrifying is my middle name.
0: (laughs) Perfect. Uh, So if it's all right with you, I'd like to sort of frame our discussion today around a case that I had. Does that work for you?
1: That sounds great.
0: So this was a bit of a time ago, but I was working and had an 18-month-old come in, 18-month-old female, presented really with what was described as one hour of choking, coughing, drooling. And unfortunately, it's one of those circumstances where they just show up. You know, I would love to sort of be a fly on the wall for the process of how these families bring their children in extremis in, how they get from point A to point B, whether they're in their car seat, whether they're cradling them in the back of the vehicle, I don't know. But they scooped up their child, didn't call or wait for an ambulance, just came into the ER Dad's running down into the resuscitation bay with a triage nurse kind of chasing behind him saying, she's just coughing and coughing and and she can't stop. So Eileen, with that in mind, even before we get into the the topic matter, tell me how you gain control of that type of room, what kind of actions uh, you take into place.
1: Yeah, you know, I have to agree with you. The most terrifying thing is when a worried parent comes in and there's a child who's entirely wrapped in a blanket. And you have no idea what you're going to find when you unwrap the blanket. I think that's a very, very scary moment. And it is important to take a step back and take control. I'm in a very enviable position in that I work with residents, NPs, and nurses who are excellent. And I have learned to delegate very well. So in my particular environment, in that situation, the first thing that I would do would be to delegate. I could talk to my senior resident and say, Hey, I need you to get some airway equipment ready. Go ahead and grab a pediatric McGill, a 4.0 and a smaller cuffed ET tube, an appropriately sized bag valve mask, and an appropriate blade to intubate the patient, like a straight blade, perhaps a Miller 1, or if you wanted to do VL, the equipment to do VL for that age group. So that would be one person taking care of all of the airway stuff and getting it ready. In terms of the parents, I'm usually very straightforward with a parent. I say, you know what? I need you to stay right here. I'm going to tell you what's going on as soon as I can take a break from helping your child. But right now I need you to stand here. You can sit if you need to sit. And I just need you to answer my questions and I will update you as soon as I possibly can. And then I ask whatever questions I have so I could take a cursory history. Or if I had somebody else with me, I would ask them to take a cursory history. Concurrently, Obviously, I have a few nurses, but I would ask them to get ready with the blow-by, get the baby on monitors if possible. This might be one of those cases where I said, you know what, just start with the pulse ox and hold off on other things because it would be possible that we could leave this child in the parent's arms and maintain the best respiratory effort possible rather than fighting the kid, crying, laying them down. So I might actually have the parent sit on the gurney with the child and put the child just on a pull socks, maybe on their foot with a sock. Try to get them to forget, and then have everybody standing around, staring at the kid, waiting, but not necessarily doing anything else.
0: Perfect. I think that's good advice, especially you know as we come up onto croup season, thinking about it in that regard. What putting the child on the stretcher, you know, all closed off, the ideal for us as clinicians, but oftentimes that's not a luxury we have, right? So I appreciate your sort of uh, commentary about maybe being in mom or dad's arms and and working around that environment, trying to keep them as calm as possible. And so dad does calm down a little bit, and we get a little bit more history And kind of asking about uh, what's been going on with the child over the last little while. He mentions the GI bug that's been present for the last week or so with some vomiting went on to a little diarrhea, no real fevers, respiratory symptoms, you know, rhinorrhea seem to be pretty cleanly unrelated to the presentation today, where he notes that uh, really about an hour, 45 minutes maybe, or so prior to presentation, his uh, daughter had a change in her status, which was kind of constant grunting and coughing initially, and then progressed to sort of this choking and drooling that we're seeing at the bedside. So Eileen, what additional questions might you ask the dad as we're getting things together?
1: You know, the suddenness of this respiratory distress onset in absentia of any other illness, it's not like there was a prodrome of a sore throat and a cough or a fever or anything like that, really kind of makes me think of things like allergic reactions, angioedema, or choking. And so I would sort of want to ask along the lines of pursuing those. And if I wasn't getting anything from the parent, sort of an interesting surrogate question for me is, well, what was the child doing before and for how long? Because if the child was in bed sleeping for two hours before, it probably isn't going to be one of those answers. Anaphylaxis or acute angioedema from an allergic origin typically sets in in about 30 to 60 minutes. So if the kid's been asleep for five hours, it's pretty unlikely they got an allergen in during that time period. I mean, I guess a bee could have come in and stung them, but it's just a lot less likely. Same with choking. I mean, I'm not saying that you can't have sort of an asymptomatic foreign body in your lungs that moves while you're sleeping or swells while you're sleeping. But for the most part, kids don't tend to choke on a coin while they're in the middle of a REM cycle. So that would be a question that would be very helpful for me to figure out if one of those two options was of very high likelihood. Obviously, we have to think about epiglottitis. It's going to be somewhere on the list, although the lack of prodrome does go against it. So I would want to know if the child were vaccinated. Of course, you can get epiglottitis even if you are vaccinated. But the H. flu epiglottitis that tends to affect and really impact kids this age tends to be mitigated by
0: the vaccine. Fantastic. I I appreciate the broadening of the differential, right? We, We kind of have an idea where we're going to bring our discussion today. But when that that child comes through the door, you don't necessarily know what you're dealing with. It seems like an upper airway obstruction of some nature. Is it allergic? Is it infectious? Is it mechanical? So I love those questions.
1: Absolutely. And I have an idea because you kind of laid out a little bit for me what this topic was. But honestly, when this kid comes in in acute respiratory distress with a parent who is just having difficulty putting a sentence together, and appropriately so, I don't know what's going on, and I'm only going to know as this information slowly trickles in.
0: Right, right, good point. And that's that's kind of how things came uh, in this case. There, we settled father. We got a little bit more of that story to answer those questions. The child had not been sleeping. It was in the afternoon. Was playing while I think you know dinner was being prepared. Uh, you know, not within eyesight, but within line of hearing, and was just playing with some toys in the space. So it does sort of paint that picture and going in the direction of an upper airway obstruction of a mechanical nature. But asking those questions are going to be very important, obviously. And so we do start to get the the child settled as well as the father we mentioned. Uh, so physical exam, some of the things that were coming through, we did not attempt to get a temperature. Uh, didn't seem to be a very relevant uh, vital sign at this point in time. We got the pulse oximeter sticker on and heart rate was Definitely inconsistent, but when we were able to trace it, it seemed to be around you know 130 to 140. Patient is definitely actively fighting staff, trying to move around in, in the father's arms. We get a waveform that seems reliable enough at 97% with some intermittent blow-by and definitely some tachypnea in the mid to high 30s with some intercostal retractions and notable drooling. So while this process is happening, a nurse is trying to, as I mentioned, give that blow by when the child's face is in an appropriate position to do so. Uh, The child, she turns her head, she kind of kicks her neck back, screams, and the nurse, you see the eyes get to the size of dinner plates, uh, confirms a small purple piece of plastic that's visualized in the hypopharynx. So, Eileen, now what do you do? I think there are several branch points or sort of turns that we need to make in our decision-making process here. And when we get down further in the discussion, I'll tell you that I think I made the wrong turn or made the wrong decision a few times in the care of this child and learned a great deal, but I see there being really two major areas of decision-making, meds and delivery mechanism. So walk me through how you navigate this complex decision tree and what choices you make, are how they vary based on the patient's age and their acuity.
1: You know, for me personally, there is really no decision tree. Because I have access to an ENT. They're not going to be in-house all the time, but within 20 to 30 minutes, I can get an ENT to come in. And for people in a situation like that, the right thing to do here is nothing. Because you said the magic word. This child is saturating 97%. Mm -hmm. Anything I do has a reasonable plausibility of making that worse. The kids not fully obstructed they're maintaining their oxygen saturations i can maybe position them a little bit differently if they start to go up and down a bit see if putting them prone is helpful but for the most part i'm going to give the parent blow by leave them on the pulse ox and i'm going to very intentionally do absolutely nothing while ent breaks every speed law to get in there because if i give the patient anything to relax their airway it can easily collapse around the foreign body and convert this to a full obstruction. If I get the patient upset and they scream and gag just wrong, this thing can fall down a little bit further and cause a complete obstruction. If I try to do some type of a blind finger sweep or whatnot, I can push it down further. And again, complete obstruction. The kid is holding their own right now. And once I have somebody in there with more equipment and quite frankly more experience with surgical airways, awake trachs, that kind of thing, then I'm going to have a much better shot of doing this safely. So as crazy as that sounds, if the kid has a saturation in the 80, 85 plus range, and they look like they might live for another 20 minutes with their degree of respiratory distress, and I have an ENT available, I am going to make 100% certain that I am set up for anything that could happen, because you don't know where this kid's gonna be five minutes from now. But I am going to do nothing other than stare at this kid until my specialist gets there.
0: That's one of those don't just do something, stand there circumstances, it seems like.
1: Oh, and so hard to do. So hard to do in that situation because every fiber of our being wants to do something. But having seen it go down both ways, doing nothing, if you have help on the way, is by far the safer course of action.
0: And I could see the argument or the devil on your shoulder sort of saying, well, if that that object is sharp or if if it causes bleeding or if it starts to swell or if the child positions on their own accord. But I think to your point, you listed four or five ways where we can screw up the child, which are probably of higher probability than the things I just mentioned.
1: And here's the thing. I'm going to be ready for if that happens. I mean, if you don't have an ENT available and you're on your own four hours from any help, then you need to take care of this definitively. You don't have another option. And if something does happen, like you said, I mean, the kid could scream on their own and this thing could move, then you're going to have to take care of it because at that point you'll have no other option. Right now you have an option and I like to keep my options open as much as possible works for poker, works for the ED. And so I'm going to do that until I can't. And there are a couple clear situations where you can't. You don't have help. The kid is obstructing themselves. They're desatting. They can't keep up this respiratory rate. And that's when I'm going to act. But it gives me a little bit more flexibility. It puts me more in control.
0: So tell me a little bit about there's that branch point right there. Either you don't have help or... You have help on their way, and you're just going to be preparing yourself in case you need to act. In both those circumstances, I think there's a list of what you need at your bedside or what you want to have. Tell me the things that are on your list.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we already talked about intubation equipment. That's going to mean something a little bit different. If you have VL, if you have DL, which you prefer, what equipment you have available for this size child, because not everybody has VL equipment for a one-year-old. Obviously, I think VL might be a little bit better in this case because you can have kind of more hands on deck. Maybe somebody else can be helping you maneuver in this tiny little mouth. But regardless, in terms of ET tube size, remember the formula is age over four plus four, go down half a size for the cuff. So you're going to end up somewhere around a four cuffed tube. And to be honest, you might want a couple smaller tubes as well because you're right, there may be some swelling going on. We talked about the blade. I definitely wanna have a nasal cannula ready for apneic oxygenation because kids desat really fast. This kid probably isn't gonna have great reserve. And even just based on their age, they're gonna desat in maybe two minutes. I want my intubation meds ready. I think Atomidate is a reasonable choice for this kid. I don't like ketamine with pharyngeal stuff. I think ketamine's great for kind of the awake intubation idea if you're going that way. But ketamine and the pharynx doesn't always work great. Like if you're trying to do a tongue laceration or any manipulation of the pharynx, I find that very difficult with ketamine. They tend to clench down and really react to it in my experience. Mm -hmm. So I probably would still go with Atomidate. The dose for kids is 0.3 milligrams per kilo. I do tend to like Rock for pediatric intubations. But this is one time where I really want the duration of paralysis to be as short as possible. So I would grab some sucks. 1.5 to 2 milligrams per kilo is the dose. Atropine is not given typically for intubations on a routine basis in pediatrics anymore. But if you think the potential for bradycardia is high, then do go ahead and draw it up and have it in your pocket. And in this case, I think the potential is high. I'm using succinylcholine, it's a small child, and I am gonna be manipulating the heck out of the pharynx airway area. And so this kid has all the factors going for them to get bradycardic. So I would grab 0.02 milligrams per kilo of atropine, just stick it in my pocket. We need stuff to remove a foreign body if we see one. We're gonna want a pediatric sized McGill forceps. And if you have it, a pediatric bougie slash ET tube exchanger. And the reason I say that is I have, this sounds like a purple piece of plastic, but it's hard to tell from a quick look. And I have actually encountered patients who required us to do a right mainstem intubation, push down the foreign body, and then pull back the ET tube to ventilate the left lung, who have had that vegetable material come back up and continue to clog the ET tube. And I've had to kind of push it away with a bougie. Luckily, it was a slightly larger kid. So a bougie usually works on a 6.0 ET tube or bigger. You might be able to get it through a 5.5, but you're not getting it through a 4. A pediatric bougie or ET tube exchanger usually can fit a 4.0 ET tube. So if you have one, never a bad idea to have it at the bedside in this type of a situation. Obviously, if you have fiber optic intubation capabilities for this age, that's great. If you do and you're comfortable using them, you probably don't need to be listening to this podcast right now. And then, of course, my backup is going to be a surgical airway, and that's going to be transtracheal jet ventilation. So I'm going to plan to do a needle crike and bag the patient through that needle crike. And for that, I'm going to need a needle over a catheter, which I might grab from a cricothyrotomy tray if you have one of those Seldinger technique trays that might contain that, or if you happen to have the old type of IV it isn't a safety IV that you can draw back from, or open a central line kit. And I'm going to connect that up to a syringe that's filled with liquid so I know when I'm in the airway. I'm going to get another 3ml syringe with the plunger pulled out, a 7.5 ET tube adapter, and a bag valve mask.
0: The old MacGyver technique. I love it.
1: The other thing I might get is some racemic epi. I mean, you brought up the idea of what if this kid progressively swells. And so if the child is kind of slowly having more and more distress as I'm waiting for a consultant, it might not be crazy to just give them a little racemic epi if they tolerate it.
0: Fantastic. I want to bring you back on a quick point that I think that was another error on our side and curious how you would approach it. We were trying to do blow-by, as I mentioned, and a nurse with a mask near the patient's face pretty routinely led to agitation. So how hard do you press on that door or push for blow-by-oxygen?
1: What was the patient saturating without the blow-by-oxygen?
0: I honestly don't know if we know because we started to do it nearly immediately. So I, I would imagine given the lack of quality of blow-by that we had and the 97%, it's probably not far off her intrinsic number
1: right i mean i think you just kind of have to work with the patient right if they're getting blow by and they're satting 97 and they're having a fit and a half and they don't get the blow by and they're satting 97 then i wouldn't push it at all if their <laughs> right. sats drop to 80% without the blow by then that might be a fight i want to have
0: sure that makes sense and uh so tell me about that a little bit more say you 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 have all your equipment together and the patient's saturation start to drop they go below that 80 cut point or God forbid the patient loses consciousness. What's your approach there?
1: It seems like it would be unlikely for the patient to lose consciousness without pretty overtly completely obstructing their airway. And so obviously if this turns into a complete obstruction where I can see this patient is not breathing at all, well, that's going to be a Heimlich. And if they've gone unconscious, it's still going to be the same Heimlich you would do on any unconscious patient. Remind me how old this child is again? 18 months. 18 months. Okay, so for under a year – we would do chest compressions and back blows instead of a Mm -hmm. Heimlich. But anybody over a year is going to get a routine Heimlich maneuver, just like an adult would. Obviously, you know, it's a little bit different, but, you know, kind of the same (laughs) general maneuver. So that would be the first thing to start with. If the child really did start to desat, then I think we would be obligated to try to go in and get that piece of plastic out. And if you can still see it, It might not be crazy to try to do it with the assistance of the parents, having them sort of help you grab that piece of plastic, maybe a couple people sort of immobilizing the kid while they cried, but definitely have a second crew there ready to go with airway maneuvers.
0: Okay, perfect. And let's, yeah, let's start sort of talking about going back to that branch play ENT, no ENT, helps on the way versus not. Let's now go down the helps not on the way direction, and we need to remove this foreign body. Tell me about your approach for anxiolysis and the uh, routed delivery of such a, a medication.
1: You know, we don't have nitrous in our ED. That might be the one thing that I might think of for anxiolysis. Like I said, ketamine is really helpful for anxiolysis in a lot of different situations, But airway stuff, I don't know that I feel like it's super helpful. I feel like kids still clench down. And if I want to get in the mouth, I just then have an altered child who may be breathing less well, who's still not going to let me in their mouth in all likelihood. So I think the first thing I would do is kind of try to see if the parents could get a look in if we kind of took a step back. We're all ready to go with airway stuff. If the parents could take a look in there and maybe try to pull the plastic out And I'm totally ready if something happens. That would be Mm -hmm. my first idea. If you did have nitrous, I think nitrous might be kind of a fun idea. Maybe get them a little bit giddy and perhaps you can get their mouth open from there. But if it comes to the point that you really need to get in the mouth and you really cannot do it without some type of medication, at that point, I'm kind of wondering if you should just go full bore. Just get ready, get all your intubation stuff out, get your surgical airway stuff out, because the kid is already desatting and moving toward obtundation to the point that they're going to die anyway. So at this point, if I convert it to a full obstruction, I really haven't changed the natural course of the disease. Mm -hmm. But it will give me now again, it's about keeping my options open because you're not going to be successful with your first try on most kids like this. So if the kid is now progressing in a fashion where the final pathway is going to lead to death within five to 10 minutes, if I do nothing, then like I said, if I can try to get it out, I'll give it a minute for the parents to sort of help me out. If I have nitrous, I might give that a minute, which we don't have. So I don't have tons and tons of experience with that, but it seems pretty quick onset. If none of that works, I think I would go with my intubation meds and just get a really good look in that airway, try to pull it out use my McGill's if I see it. If I don't see it, I try to pass that ET tube. Maybe I tried to put a surgical airway if I see it just below the glottis so that I didn't push it down any further. That would kind of be where I would go next.
0: And to push you a little further on that, we do not currently have IV access. So would you, how would you approach obtaining it? if you're, You mentioned sort of going down the route of RSI. Um, talk to me a little bit about your, your means of of getting to that point.
1: That is a tough one. We could give some of our medications I am, but again, at that point, you're kind of making the decision that you're going to take over this patient. You're going to paralyze them. You're going to take control. So I think it might be reasonable to have the nurse go ahead and try if it looks like there's a possibility to get an IV. The other option would be to give medications intramuscularly, and then as soon as the patient is down, throw in a quick I.O. It's obviously a very different scenario if you're at a single coverage institution, because clearly Mm. you're not going to be mucking around in this patient's airway and doing an I.O. at the same time. So if I were in that situation, I think I would just accept that the patient might obstruct, except that i was going to give intubation medications and go ahead and torture them for access if i had to being mm-hmm. ready for the potential obstruction whereas if i knew that i had several hands on deck i might feel a little bit more comfortable administering medications i am and then having somebody else throw in an io quickly have the nurses work on a line quickly while i looked at the airway
0: perfect Uh, That makes sense to me. Uh, So I'll tell you what we did, and then we can uh, both Monday morning quarterback it because I I made a couple errors, as I mentioned earlier on. We uh, work in a community hospital that has relatively not far tertiary care uh, pediatric ED. So the number of young, sick children we see is is kind of few and far between. So confidence in in a nurse being able to kind of sneak an arm out from mom and dad and quickly throw in an IV... Uh, was was relatively low. We my initial thought was intranasal midazolam. And so uh, kind of a, a heavier 18 month old, and unfortunately, at dosing of five milligrams, uh, sorry, 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, it was greater than one ML, which we didn't really get to the second attempt at intranasal medication administration because I altered the story a little bit in that when we gave the first intranasal dose of midazolam, That was when the uh, loud scream, throwing neck back, and visualization of the foreign body occurred. So that was attempted, and I think it was an error on my part. I I had always sort of thought of that as the route I would go, a little spray up the nose, calm the child down, get things to where we have more control of the situation, maybe we can prep for an IV. But the uh, administration of a full ML in the nostril of this child was not well-received, kind of led to a head change or position change that was dangerous and maybe made her a little bit sleepier.
1: Yeah. One thing I will tell you about intranasal midazolam is it is very irritating. And so any kid who gets it is going to be irritated and agitated during the administration just because it kind of hurts. Now, obviously, Mm. we're typically doing it for a procedure that's going to be painful and we want to, you know, be able to give them maybe local numbing medication, maybe we need to get a CT scan. I mean, we're typically doing it with a good cause, but it's not painless. The other thing is I agree with you. You can't absorb more than one ml per nary, and really the best absorption is a lot lower than that. And so I agree, it's going to be hard to get the right dose of medication in nasally for a kid that's a little bit on the larger side, even in that age group. We can do it, Usually split between two nostrils, but I understand you were trying to agitate the kid as little as possible. The other thing that always scares me a little bit about medazolam is, and I tell the parents this as part of my consent procedure, you know, it kind of makes you drunk. And just like most friends when you're drunk are much more social and some of them get a little tired or they get a little bit more mellow, there's always that one guy in the corner who starts breaking chairs over everybody's head when they're drunk. <laughs> There's a possibility yep. your kid is going to be that guy, and the good news is we'll know. The bad news is we are never going to get this procedure accomplished without moderate sedation because he's going to be running up and down the hallways breaking chairs over people's heads. And so I would be a little bit nervous in this situation about that head chair breaker kid coming out when we gave the medazolam.
0: That's fair. I'll say I, I've never been that guy. I'm not sure exactly what you're talking about uh, with the with the intoxicated folk, but I can visualize it, I suppose. But um, no, I, I I agree and appreciate it. Um, I honestly feel like in most of the painful procedures that I've attempted in this age group, they are stimulating enough that you know in IND or laceration uh, washout and repair. That it makes it gives you that little bit of drunk, but the second you add that degree of stimulation, the midazolam really is in itself not adequate. It's not uh, sufficient whether you're adding a little brutane or you're adding another medication. But I haven't had a great deal of success with that dosing of midazolam being sufficient for any of these procedures we're mentioning.
1: Yeah, there's evidence that you can complete. 70-something, maybe about 75% of procedures using intranasal midazolam. But there's a big difference between completing a procedure and having the child remain comfortable and cooperative during
0: the procedure. Very big difference, yes. So in our circumstance, that medicine was administered, kind of settled back into parents' arms, continued to drool, continued to have some retractions and almost an uh nature to respirations and we did not have ENT, but we had called for anesthesia. And anesthesia joined a bedside as well as one of my colleagues, and we had the gamut of tools that you had mentioned. And from there we were sort of talking about our options. And one that came to light, which I'd love to hear if you've even heard of this or considered doing it. Um, we talked about you know uh, intramuscular ketamine as as probably our next most desirable option. And if things really sort of hit the fan, Yes, we can grab an easy uh, IO or, you know, get an IO, uh, but they also mentioned the use of intramuscular succinylcholine, which I was unfamiliar with and uh, found it interesting. You know, ketamine, we often, in our, in our uh, agitated deliriums, we're using the four milligrams per kilogram IM, and succs is in that same range, around four mgs per kg IM. So to complete the story for the child, we, she had an effect from the midazolam that allowed For uh, ketamine administration in the thigh without much change, uh, didn't cause a lot of bucking or fighting. And we did use that dosing of four MIGs per kg. She continued to breathe rather well, but became uh, much more compliant to where we could look, use our pediatric regals, and remove the foreign body without any major issue. She didn't need any airway procurement. We actually just observed her with uh, capnography and, and parents at bedside. And it's a long, you know, if you've ever done that takedown, it's a long time to metabolization. But it was a happy story for the child. Um, so, what what are your thoughts on that kind of experience with both the ketamine? And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on the succinylcholine. I am. I think that's
1: awesome. I think that's awesome that you got it. I think that's great. She let you in her mouth after you administered the ketamine. I'm really glad it went down that way, and it sounds like you saved her life. I don't think, looking at it in retrospect, that you guys made any mistakes. I think this is just a situation where there's no one size fits all and you try to use the resources that you could to help the child, and that's totally appropriate. I think intramuscular sucks is a great idea, and I think that having done that as the next step, if you hadn't been able to get it out with the ketamine, followed by a quick IO in case something happened while another provider was looking at the airway and trying to remove the foreign body, would have been a very appropriate next step.
0: Thank you. That That's important validation, I think, for me as a provider. But yeah, I think it was a happy ending, and um, one of those cases that you you visualize uh, frequently and sort of have your route and the direction you're going to take care. But I hadn't gone multiple steps ahead of what you know. What if that fails? And the one for me was you know if the uh, intranasal midazolam is unsuccessful, what direction should we go from there? So uh, we're very happy, obviously, that the ketamine worked well, and it's nice to have this sort of uh, number of arrows in your quiver in these cases, because they can be pretty complex and need different decisions and different routes of administration, obviously, depending on how uh, ill or an, an extremist the child is.
1: What was it when you finally got it out?
0: So it was about a uh, little slightly smaller than a quarter, around the size of a quarter piece of round plastic, it almost looked like a gear. So it did have some like starred edges to it. I think that kind of held it in that place. It wasn't smooth on the sides but a small piece of plastic that popped off of a toy.
1: Wow. That kid yeah. got really lucky that you were there because that could have been a fatal aspiration.
0: Well, thank you. And and uh, again, thank you for sort of talking through these cases because you can experience them in real life as I did. And, and as I mentioned, I still feel like came out lucky on the other side in some regards. But to all the listeners, you know, this is an important time to do that visualization, that mental modeling, that preparation so that... You have your branch points. You have your decision tree uh, when that child hits your door. Eileen, any final thoughts uh, on the topic matter?
1: No, and I think you're right. It's There's no right. There's no wrong. You think through what the potential consequences are of your actions. You look at where this kid is, where they're going, what the direction is, how quick it is, what your resources are, and you just make the best decision you can in that moment.
0: Fantastic concluding points. So thank you so much for joining us for this conversation talking through these scary kids um, and scary airways and uh, looking forward to hopefully having you on again.
1: Thank you for having me.